For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. These are challenging times, and we respect your unwavering commitment to your students. At Amplify, we are working especially hard to support you. And as we all grapple with what it means to focus on the science of reading in a new world of remote learning, we're committed to walking with you through the unknown. Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert. Join us as we talk with experts to explore what it takes to develop joyful, confident, and capable readers. Today, I talk with Lawrence Holt, who's the primary author of Learning to Read a Primer, both part one and part two. These are really handy guides that outline the science of reading in ways that make the research really accessible. They include helpful metaphors and supporting illustrations that explain the science of reading so clearly. Since these primers have recently gone viral on social media, we thought it would be great to have a conversation with him to hear about the process and get his take on reading science. If you haven't seen these primers, check out the show notes for links. You're going to enjoy them as much as you're going to enjoy this podcast. Well, hi, Lawrence. Thank you so much for joining us on today's episode. Great to be here. You know, I always like to start out by asking our guests to explain how they got interested in early literacy, which clearly you are. But maybe you can explain what motivated you to author the primers or the primers. (laughs) I don't know if we've ever landed on what they're really called. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's potato, potato, and we're going to be saying both of them the whole podcast. Sure. Yeah. No, is it, it's, a, it's a funny story, actually. I, one of the first things I got asked to do when I got interested in K-12 education was transport Catherine Snow, who's a professor at Harvard and one of the world's leading experts on, on early reading, to, from a, a conference where she was a keynote presenter to a meeting. So I was sort of sitting in a, in a yellow cab in Manhattan with Catherine Snow, and I said, you just said at this conference that we have solved the question of how kids learn to read. And she said, yes. And I said, but I could be wrong, but the data appears to say that there's still a very large number of kids who don't read on time. And she said, oh yes, that's true. Uh, What I mean is we've figured out the research, exactly how you put that into practice. That's, isn't that your problem, Lawrence? I think she said to me. (laughs) So so, uh, I started reading around this and I was lucky enough to be able to talked to lots of amazing researchers, some of which you've had on the podcast. And um, 
you just kind of got hooked. And so fast forward, you asked me about the Primus too. Um, a long time after that, I think we realized that there is, so there's a lot of new and exciting science in reading as you've been covering on the podcast. And a lot of it, it has very practical applications. It's not it's esoteric. Um, and yet there are very few places that teachers can go. They obviously don't have time to read all of the research. It's voluminous. Um, where do they go to get that up-to-date insight and be able to put it in practice in, in accessible terms? And uh, there are some really great books. You've had some of the authors on, um, but they, we, we couldn't find something that was just quick and accessible. And so um, I started to work on that with a, with a cast of thousands of researchers and designers, and, and you contributed to it, Susan, thank you. Um, and, uh, and that's how we wound up with trying to distill all of this into two really short books. Yeah, they're really brilliant, actually. They're so accessible and finding their way around the social media world, both for teachers and administrators and for parents in some pretty exciting ways. Exactly. That, that was the audience, obviously teachers, but as you say, parents and, you know, superintendent, maybe secretaries of education. I think that we come across a lot of people who, um, since, since learning to read is such a pivotal moment in all of K-12, really feels like everybody should have the basics. And, uh, and, and so that's what we hope they get when they, when they look at these primers. Yeah, they really provide the basics and they're beautiful too. I mean, not only do they provide a great overview, but uh, you've presented them in a really beautiful way. Uh, I must say though, that I think this is the first time I've heard anybody get in, getting interested in early literacy because they helped transport a reading science guru in a yellow cab. So you win that one. <laughs> um, the podcast is really about the science of reading, just like the primers. They're all about the science of reading. And so I wonder if you can help us to understand what the science of reading is. Where did it come from? What's the high level or overview? And then maybe we'll dig in a little deeper. Um, so, wow, I don't know where to start with that one. Um, should we go, I mean, maybe the, is the simple view of reading something you've covered on the podcast? Is that We actually have not. And so it would be great if you could talk a little bit about that just in terms of structure. Yeah, this is such a great way in, I, I find, um, for people who are starting to, to, to come to grips with the whole topic. Something called the simple view of reading. It's a natural, you know, it's a, it's a research paper that was published back in the day. And it attempts to, I think it does a really good job of just making the basic idea of what happens when you are reading something um, clear. And there, basically it says there are two things that happen. One is you have to take these arbitrary symbols that are on the page and convert them into sound, speech, basically. And then the second thing that happens is you take that speech, the language, and you make sense of it. And so you can think of those two. Now, when, when you're reading, both of those are going on so quickly and so seamlessly, you don't really stop to think about, about what's happening. But if you're five years old, um, you have, your, your language is strong, right? You can talk, you can understand, but you don't actually have the first part, which is translating these symbols into speech. So that's where uh, you are going to, you're gonna get a lot of progress if you, if you focus on that. 
Um, and so just sort of give an example about, let me give an example about how these two parts are different. If I read, so I have something in front of me here, I'm going to read, um, here we go. Factum fieri, infectum non potest. So I, did, I think I did a reasonable job of, of getting the symbols off the page into speech there. Have you any idea? I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. Despite several years of Mr. Grasby trying to teach me Latin, I actually don't know what that says. Um, so I can, in other words, I have the first part of the simple view of reading. I have the decoding part, but I don't have the language. If you're five years old, you may, it, very often it's the other way around. You have the language, but you don't have the decoding. And so simple view of reading says, let's think about these two separate pieces and what it takes to become a strong reader. Uh, now, it's obviously a very, very simplified model and, and people and, and indeed in the primer, we go from there and we, we put much more flesh on, on those bones. But it's, a, it's just an easy way to kind of grasp the, the big idea. Yeah, and made many people know Scarborough and that representation of it, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, huge fan of Scarborough, which is just for people who haven't heard it, and again, it's in the primer, um, is uh, it takes those two aspects, so the decoding and then the language, and, and breaks them down into a, a total of eight strands. And then, you know, those are the strands uh, that you have to weave together to be a, an expert reader. And it's really an amazing, when you, if you think about it, the kind of reading that you, can, that you can now do is an amazing virtuoso performance. Um, and from, a, from a, the point of view of a, of a little kiddo, it's actually the biggest chunk of learning that they're, that they're gonna do for, for years. They've never been faced with, it takes multiple years and um, it's a big undertaking. So they're gonna, you know, they're gonna need time, they're gonna need a lot of support, it's no wonder that, that it takes a while. Yeah, for sure. And and with that, maybe we can just start to dive into the word recognition part or that decoding, decoding part of Scarborough and just talk about what has to happen in learning the English code. I mean, it seems like it's rather complicated process and it seems like English can be a little bit overwhelming. So what's that all about? Yes, I blame the English for this, uh, but <laughs> definitely. Um, the language, uh, so the written English, English spelling is just, is what we called not transparent. Um, and so to explain that, a transparent language is one in which as you um, are decoding, the sounds of each letter are almost always the same. So Italian, for instance, or Spanish or Finnish. Um, so as soon as you figured out that the, the letter A makes the A sound, you're, you're good to go. Um, in English, that is not the case. It doesn't always make the same sound. Um, and my favorite example of this actually is uh, O-U-G-H, right? So O-U-G-H in, in, uh, in, in cough, it makes the sound off. In though, it makes a completely different sound, <laughs> exactly the same spelling. Oh, and there are, there are actually six different, in English, there are six different sounds that those four letters can make. Maybe we'll leave it as an exercise for listeners to, uh, to figure out the others. Scavenger hunt. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so if you're, if you're first encountering that, um, that, and I, of course, none of us remember when we were first encountering that, but, but if you spend time with, with kids who are doing it, 
it's kind of annoying, right? Like, how many different ways have you guys come up with to uh, to make these four letters have different sounds? Um, and you you just there's nothing for it. You just have to learn them. Um, and so someone has to has to tell you. You're not going to get it from picture. Um, fortunately, it's not as bad as that's a, that's a particularly egregious example. But um, actually, it's not. You know, most of English, uh, if you know the most common sounds for for letters and uh, and digraphs like sh, you're in pretty good shape. Um, but there are, there are a lot of oddities that don't appear in other languages. So we're we just have to work harder in English. Yeah, and. That's a really interesting example that you described, um, cough and the though. I've never quite thought about it like that until right now, um, about if we just introduced one of those, like the off, and kids went to apply it, it just, well, it would kind of put them in really bad places in terms of reading comp comprehension, much less the code. Exactly. And one, of the things you, one of the things you start to see is... Um, as kids re realize that, okay, there may be multiple ways to pronounce this. And they'll try, what, what you hope they do is they try each of them and then, and then realize, oh yeah, cough, yeah, 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 that's a word. Whereas co, co, that's not a word. Um, and so this is a link and we'll maybe come back to this to Do they have the vocabulary? Yeah, that makes sense. And yes, we will come back to that. Um, so I know that you know that explicit nature of this instruction is really important for kids when they're young. Um, there's some really important work that's going on inside of the brain when this happens. Can you tell us a little bit about that, uh, about the rewiring and what's going on? Yeah, this is really fascinating. And um, there's a whole sequence in, in the first primer where we actually show the brain images um, that are really only available in the last uh, couple of decades that show, actually show what's going on in real time. Um, and here's a way to think about it. Um, so we talked before about the two, about simple view of reading and these two aspects, one understanding language, the other decoding, getting, getting this script off the page. Understanding language, just about everybody. Um, figures out how to talk and understand. That is, um, you're pre-wired for that. Your brain has that at, at birth. You've obviously got to learn whichever particular language it is you're surrounded by, but um, you get it. Decoding, though, is, is artificial. Humans invented it, and not that long ago, only about five, 6,000 years ago. So back on the Savannah Plain, 100,000 years ago, nobody was reading, there was nothing to read, there were no signs. And there were no books, so um, we've had to learn that um, in a in a more artificial way. And specifically, what we do is we are trying to connect the visual part of the brain, which happens to be right at the back, to the auditory, or the fancy word is phonological part of the brain, um, which is on the left hand side and further forward. And so, um, but you can actually see if you scan brains. Um, a non-reader will look at symbols on a page and the, the back of the brain, the visual part is, is lighting up, but the speech part doesn't light up. Whereas a reader, the connection will flow through from the visual at the back to the speech part. And there's one little area of the brain that's been identified that is really doing the lifting. And you can see as readers get stronger, you can actually see it um, activate more. So we know now exactly what's going on. You're essentially rewiring part of your brain to be able to do this 
unnatural act of, of reading. And that's why it takes a while. Yeah, it's so fascinating that like, well, to think about number one, how amazing our brains are that we can actually make that connection happen, but also that we need to make that connection happen. We need to. And um, I think that part of the brain is the visual word form area. Do I have that, that right? That is exactly that right? it. You do. And the primer does a really good job of walking through that and describing what has to happen with that. Um, maybe there's an easy way. Can you explain an easy way without using the images? Um, yes, podcasts are perfectly designed for this kind of situation, <laughs> aren't they? Um, well, you mean in terms of um, actually what's going on with the activation in the brain? Yeah, actually, what what is going on with that activation? Um, so I think the best way to sort of visualize it is um, when you are talking or listening to not reading, then, and I, if I took a photo, if I took the, not a photo, an image of your brain, and on the left-hand side, about the middle of your, of your temple, um, you would see that area activate. That's the speech area. Um, it's incredibly sophisticated and complicated, and, um, and it's evolved over a gazillion years of years. And that's the part that's there all the time. That's the part that's the natural development of language. Correct. Yeah. Um, should, you know, full disclosure, I'm not a neuroscientist. You've had neuroscientists on your phone, or you're going to. Yes, Bruce. Bruce McCandless will help us with He's that. He's an amazing um, neuroscientist at, at Stanford, and, and he um, helped us get this right in the primer. Um, so I'm doing the layperson's version, um, but it's kind of enough to understand what's going on. So there's that area that is the speech area, um, and and that's separate from the visual area of the brain, which is one of the most studied areas of the brain, which is right at the back. A bit weird, it's a long way from your eyes, but that's just how the whole thing got connected together. Um, and so when you're reading, you're, um, it's obviously it starts with the visual recognition, and that is then triggering sounds. So if you read, you know, A-T, you, you are automatically, that's triggering the sounds at. In fact, if you've seen that word before, it goes straight, triggers the word straight away, at. And that then um, triggers all of the speech part of the brain that makes sense of, of that word and indeed <clears throat> the sentence. Um, so uh, and in fact, it happens so fast that you can now read at a, at a very fast rate. Whereas when you were four or five, you, it was sort of painfully slow. And this is, of course, this is how anything becomes automatic, like reading a, riding a bike or, or juggling or any skill like that. You start off very slow and clunky and you gradually get faster and faster until you have read um, these words so many times that it just happens in a split second. And in fact, it's interesting, you can't stop yourself. If I showed you the word elephant, um, you actually can't, can't stop thinking about, and there's no way to look at that and not think elephant. So it, it just happens, it's magical. Um, but it actually took a lot of hard work to make those connections. So flowing through from that visual area at the back to the visual word form area that you mentioned, which is kind of the, the, the switchboard that then connects out to speech. And so right there, the two areas of the simple view of reading, the first one being the visual decoding and the second one 
all that you already know about language and speech and understanding. And then all of a sudden it makes a connection after some hard work. And just to give a plug for the Bruce McCandless episode of the podcast, he, he actually does go into some detail about why our brains do better with sort of starting from the discrete sounds or phonemes and then going to the whole word rather than starting with the whole word. That actually the connection needs to come from the sound first rather than at the word level. Oh, that's, that's great. I can't wait to hear that. Then the simple version of that, that that he's told me is if you think about it, if you had to recognize each word separately, which in some languages, um, Chinese isn't, this is an oversimplification, but, but Chinese is, is one of them where uh, you essentially you have to learn each word separately. You've got 50,000 words to learn. If you're instead just recognizing the letters and translating them into sounds, then you've got far, far fewer. So it's just a much, more efficient system once you've learned it. It makes total sense. And again, you know that, well, this is just really interesting to me. Once you become a proficient reader and you can see the word elephant and you have a strong vocabulary, it's really difficult to go back and unweave those threads, sort of go backwards to understand what's actually happening in your brain. So this neuroscience, that really makes it come alive. It's so fascinating. I, you'd think that's a really great point that it's so long since we were, were, were you know, slow at reading any of it that it's, it's tough to, re, to remember just how much effort it took. But we all did really work hard to get there. So, so well done. Yeah, thank you. Well, hey, how about if we make a switch now to talk about the other side, this sort of language comprehension idea, uh, and maybe we can start with uh, a little bit about the importance of background knowledge as it relates to language comprehension. Yeah, that, this, is, this is really fascinating. And again, something that sort of wasn't known until fairly recently. So obviously language, there's a big part of it that is, that is vocabulary and syntax. Um, but it, but uh, I'm going to take us, if you'll allow me, to uh, to Norway, Wisconsin, back in the in the late 80s. Um, maybe not that far from where you are now. I'm not sure. Um, where uh, there's a really fascinating experiment that took place um, that changed our view of of what it really means to comprehend when reading. What happened was. Um, two researchers got a set of middle school kids and they read them a passage um, or no, they didn't read them. The kids themselves read a passage on of uh, baseball, uh, like a, a sort of baseball. Now I, I should say, I don't know a lot about baseball. Let me, uh, so for instance, Cherniak swings and hits a slow bouncing ball to the shortstop. Haley comes in, fields it, throws to first, but too late. So, okay, so they would read a whole passage like that. Um, and then they were asked to uh, reenact it, uh, reenact that scene on a little baseball toy setup. And the researchers would then score how, how good of a job did they do in reenacting what they just read. In other words, it's a measure of comprehension. Um, and what they were looking to answer was, who does best? Is it kids who are strong readers, who have a general ability to read anything, or so they thought, or is it kids who know a lot about baseball? Or does it not make a difference? So you're reading this baseball passage, you're reenacting it. 
who do you think is going to do better? And people should feel free to stop the pause the podcast and think, what, what do you think is going to happen there? And I'll tell you what it turned out that the kids who were best at the at basically reading comprehension for these passages were actually the kids with good baseball knowledge. Um, kids with who were strong readers, if they didn't know enough about baseball, were not very good. So it turned out, really, that they they are strong readers, but it depends what they're reading. And I, I would say, I, I think I'm a strong reader, but I'm not a strong reader of of quantum mechanics papers, right? Okay, right? It depends on what you're reading. And, and specifically, what they found was there's some background knowledge. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, there's, there's concepts. There's just having been exposed to the space there's obviously vocabulary, there's, there's connections between the words and the ideas, and there's just a level of comfort and confidence in, in a particular topic. And um, if you have that, you will be a stronger reader than, than if not. Now, that was, that was kind of new, um, and maybe we'll go on. I'll pause, but you know there are some pretty big implications. I know you've done a lot of work and thinking on this this space. Yeah, and what's interesting is not only are the primers making it around social media, this baseball study is making it around again too, um, just as a reminder of the importance of background knowledge. And what's so interesting is when you use an example, like when you used your own personal example, right? So if I was trying to engage in a text on string theory, I'd be a horrible reader. But if I'm reading about early reading, for example, I'm much better. And I think as adults, we get that, but we've forgotten to apply that, or maybe we just haven't thought to apply that exactly. to students. Um, we once did a, a fun um, experiment with teachers where we asked them to read. Um, so it wasn't quantum mechanics, but it was something like that. And then asked them what the main idea was. And of course, that we all struggled to come out with what the main idea was. Um, so we said, ah, oh, obviously we need more training on main idea. And they said, no, no, we don't. We just didn't know what that passage was about. Aha, it's background knowledge. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. It makes a difference, doesn't it? When you know something, it's the idea that knowledge builds on knowledge. Yeah, and, and I know things have happened, like kids don't have access to that kind of content now. So how in the world do we help them build their background knowledge when it comes to that? Yeah, I, mean, I think the classroom implications for this are uh, enormous. Um, so if you think about what's going to happen on the test, on a state test or an SAT passage or, or, or just in real life, if you are... Um, reading, you know, if you're faced with a passage on animal ecosystems, which, by the way, we did a survey, and that's the number one topic that occurs in in ELA state tests. Um, yeah. So if you if you don't know much about that, then just like the strong readers who didn't know about baseball, you're disadvantaged. Um, and so, uh, and, and where similarly, if there's a passage on Greek myths and you and you just have never been exposed to that, then you it's harder. So, um, so the question arises: How can we build that kind of knowledge in in students? Now, it turns out back in the day, that kind of thing did actually used to get taught in in elementary schools, science and social studies. Where now, as a recent survey um, said that. The amount of science that's taught in elementary classrooms is about 20 minutes a day or less. And so um, that is putting kids at a disadvantage. 
and it's an equity issue because there are um, many kids who maybe are going to museums or their parents are reading nonfiction books to them or they just got interested in it. Um, and so they now have a real advantage over other kids who just didn't get to hear about that. So the short answer is we have to put that knowledge instruction back into the classroom. And there are even um, some curricula that teach reading that um, do it simultaneously with teaching that background knowledge, the leading one being um, core knowledge language arts, which I know you know a lot about, Susan. How many kids in the US now are, are, are learning from that curriculum, do you know? Oh, oh man, maybe a, a million students. We're, we're really close to a million students, yeah. So it's becoming a real, it's, it's a real thing. And I think the results, you could talk about this or point people to it, but it, it really translates into more success. In fact, Dan Willingham, who's a professor at the University of Virginia, um, puts it this way. He said, reading tests are knowledge tests in disguise. Yeah, yeah. You know, Natalie Wexler has, as you know, recently highlighted this in her book. And well, she was on the very first episode of our podcast, but she actually went in and did some classroom observations and watched what happened in classrooms that were building background knowledge versus classrooms that were doing some sort of strategy kind of instruction. And it's like, like really similar to what you said, if you don't have the background knowledge to actually be able to know what the text is about, you're really hard pressed to find the main idea. Right. All the strategy training that you want is, is not going to make a difference if you actually don't know what the topic is. Yeah, so that has implications for the way we instruct students in the classroom as it relates to ELA and how we think about comprehension, I think. Um, so you know when we talk about that language side of the house too, and when, when we know that we have language of a topic, you also have vocabulary about a topic. So how is it then that our brains actually handle this idea of vocabulary? Because as I'm learning more and more about it, or learning about baseball, let's say, I'm learning vocabulary words that are related to baseball. And so how do we sort of categorize that in our brains? Yeah, so vocabulary is is another huge and fascinating topic. And again, what we were trying to do in the in thinking about this for the primer was um, what are the big what are the big takeaways? And one of the big takeaways we discovered for thinking about how kids learn vocabulary, and we learn vocabulary is um, you might think it's a bit like a list, like a dictionary, and you're just kind of slotting the next word in as you learn it. But actually, that's not how it works at all. Um, it's a, in fact, it's a, it's a web, it's a network, um, which makes sense because that's actually how the brain is architected. Um, so when you learn a new word, you will learn it far better if, you, if the other words that it's related to are already known to you because you're then you're fitting it into a pre-existing web and it has very strong connections and you'll be able to make sense of it. Um, and so that's why that tells us we want to teach words that are um, as if possible in clusters and make sure when we teach them we relate them to synonyms but also antonyms um, and, and any other concepts. So an, an example would be, um, you know, words like need, want, desire, yearn, hanker, aspire, uh, that those are related. So if I'm trying to, t if we come across hanker in a book 
um, I need to really, I need to be mindful that what I'm trying to do is put that into this pre-existing web you have. And the better network you already have, the easier it is for you to learn. So there's this is kind of rich get richer thing going on with vocabulary. Um, there's no shortcut. It's just there's just a lot of it. And the the more one of the best ways to be building those web is is to read, and uh, and to um, discuss the reading with with people and to stop when you don't understand a word and either figure it out or or do something crazy like actually look it up and find out what it means and that's going to be a much stronger way for you then to kind of gradually build out all of these networks so it's a different kind of vocabulary instruction uh, different than hey here's the six words that we're going to look up in the dictionary before we start to read Rather, it's expanding your knowledge and making deeper connections then between words. Exactly. Yeah, the word of the day, I'm gonna and I'm gonna post it up here, is you know, it's obviously there's there's value to that, but it it's much more powerful according to the research if you can teach a network of related words. Would now, of course, that comes right back back to knowledge. If we're talking about animal ecosystems. There's a vocabulary right there, and it all fits together and makes sense. That's the time to be teaching it. Yeah, that makes sense. And when we're talking about words and vocabulary words, but maybe words just in general, there's this idea. So right now we have this idea, I think, that comprehension is only what you do after you're done reading. So think about what the author said, summarize this idea, respond to some question after you're reading. But there's also a part of comprehension that's really at the sentence level that you actually have to understand how words and sentences make sense. Is that right? That's exactly right. Um, and there's that that's really new, um, our understanding of exactly what's going on. Not what's going on when we understand the, uh, the sentence level, but how you learn that and what it is that beginning readers um, struggle with, which again is tough for us to remember. Um, now, I th and I think you've had, there's a lot and the primer on this, and uh, um, I think you've had um, a podcast dedicated to this topic. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. In our episode with Anne Lucas, she talks a lot about that. But maybe you can give us an example of what this might look like for the learner. Sure. Well, so one one big part of it is is inference. Um, so to give an example, Carla forgot her umbrella and got very wet today. Now you and I know that the connection there's two separate statements there she forgot her umbrella she got wet you and i know very straightforwardly that when you forget your umbrella and it rains you're going to get wet um so uh the the piece that got alighted over in fact got, got basically left out of the sentence was that it rained and you have to infer that that's a really simple example and and most kids would get that too but, in, but writers do this all the time. In fact, if they didn't leave things like that, you'd have to say, Carla forgot her umbrella, and then it rained, and then she got wet today. And it's, and it's, it's, it's horrible and boring. So they leave things out. They make assumptions about what you're going to be able to infer. Um, and beginning readers, who are still, remember, spending a lot of cycles connecting the sound, symbols to the sounds and, and sort of piecing together the sentence, um, they don't have a lot of processing left over to to fill in these inference gaps. Um, and so they may just not make the inference, in which case 
they've missed what, the whole point of, of what's going on. Right, right, yeah. So you, and this is trainable. You can, we found, and there, there are studies that show that again, it comes down to practice. Um, firstly, the better, the stronger you are at, the, at decoding, the more processing power you have left over to do to start making gap-filling inferences, but also just getting practice and having someone point out and stop and say, huh, what happened there? How did she get wet? So that you're building the habit of making that inference. Yeah, well, this has been a really great overview of the simple view of reading or what it takes to become a proficient reader. I think I've heard before that's sort of like a lockbox that needs two keys. I think maybe that's in the primer as well. Um, so Lawrence, again, I just really want to thank you for being here, for walking us through this. And of course, I'm wondering if you could leave us with something that you think is really important for folks to take away from today's episode. Yeah, thank you so much for, for giving me this chance as well, Susan. I, I, um, I think of it, I think of, I think of coming to this topic originally myself and it, it is huge there's probably more research on early reading than than anything else in in education in fact i'm sure that's the case um, so as a as a as a practitioner or as a parent um, how it, it, it can look overwhelming and my message would be um, like a lot of things in life that, that look overwhelming there are some elements you can learn very quickly um, that actually are very accessible and they're ideas that make intuitive sense and that um, are immediately practical and that you can start putting to use. And um, so I would say, do not worry about the size of the top. You have to find a way in. Um, and and the, the primer and these podcasts are great ways to, to just start getting to grips of background knowledge, the big ideas like background knowledge that we talked about and the oddities of English spelling. And so, so dive in and uh, it's, you'll find it fascinating and um, going to be life-changing for lot, lots of people. Yeah. And we just want to thank you again for offering these great primers that help people actually get into it without feeling too overwhelmed. So thanks again for being here. We really appreciate it. And we will link our listeners to these primers in our show notes. Thank you so much. I had a blast. We're so grateful to our amazing guest today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast. And we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book, or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.